potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another fascinating guest today who has been involved uh, in creating a better tomorrow for so many people uh, for over the last 40 years throughout her multifaceted career as a public servant, a scholar, a teacher, an administrator. Uh, today, we have the pleasure of being joined uh, by the Honorable Secretary Dr. Donna Shalala, a professor emerita, Department of Health Management and Policy at University of Miami, uh, where she previously served uh, as president uh, from 2001 to 2015, uh, where during her tenure, she advanced that university into a top tier of U.S. research universities around the country. Uh, Secretary Shalala received her bachelor's degree uh, from Western College for Women, her PhD degree uh, from Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse. Uh, in addition to her leadership of the uh, University of Miami, she also served as both the president of Hunter College, as well as the chancellor uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, Secretary Shalala was uh, assistant secretary for policy development and research uh, in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development during the Carter administration in 1993. She was appointed by President Bill Clinton to uh, head uh, the Health and Human Services Department as United States Secretary, where she served for eight years, uh, the longest running HSA Secretary that we've had, during which time she uh, fought for the implementation and creation of the uh, Children's Health Care Insurance Program, or CHIP, covering over 7.6 million children throughout the country, doubling the budget of the, uh, the NIH and, and securing the highest rate of immunizations that we've had. Uh, Secretary Shalea was also appointed by uh, President President George W. Bush to, uh, to co-chair with uh, Senator Bob Dole at the time, the Commission on Care for Returning Wounded Warriors. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, in 2009, she was appointed to the Committee on the Future of Nursing at the Institute of Medicine on the National Academy of Sciences. And most recently, in addition to serving uh, in Congress uh, for Florida's 27th uh, Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, she has also served as a member of the, uh, the Council of Foreign Relations Independent Task Force on Emerging Global Health Crisis, as well as a commissioner on the uh, Bipartisan Commission of Biodefense, formerly the uh, Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. We have a lot of exciting topics to go into with her. Uh, we're honored to have her. Uh, Secretary Dr. Donna Shalala, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Well, thank you very much. My resume is longer than usually I'm uh, willing to talk. <laughs> it, it, it would take up probably most of the show. So <laughs> I had to cut it short, but I, I appreciate you being here. There's, there's a lot of uh, topics I'd love to get into uh, with you. And I think, you know, one place I'd like to start off with, um, you know, talking about the uh, uh, the recent bipartisan commission. You know, I, I, I took some time to go into uh, to PubMed and go back in history and look at some of your, uh, your peer review 
reviewed literature. And I came up with a, a bunch of papers that you wrote at the, the end of the 1990s, um, uh, one entitled Bioterrorism, How Prepared Are We? Uh, one collaboration in the fight against infectious diseases. And then in science, you wrote a, an article on uh, the research agenda for smallpox. It was 23 years ago. Um, and you, these, were, these papers were, needless to say, quite ahead of their time for where we are today. Um, can you talk a little bit about what was going on? What were you thinking about back in 1999? Why you were so interested in this space? And a little bit of your uh, journey into this sort of fascinating moonshot in terms of both the, the commission and then the, uh, uh, the Athena agenda for biodefense. Well, you know, the role of leaders is really to anticipate the future. And that's what I was trying to do at HHS. It was not simply the day-to-day -day firefighting that you have to do when you're a cabinet secretary, um, but it's really trying to get prepared for the future. And uh, it was very clear to me, uh, both in immunizations as well as uh, all the issues of biodefense. Um, you know, you can talk about COVID, but you know, diseases can be spread by, um, by other nations, by rogue nations. And I've always been interested in um, the role of infectious diseases and how they could be misused and create chaos around the world. Um, and, and, and those early papers were trying to convince the Congress in particular the administration was committed that we really made need to make investments in infrastructure in our ability to respond. Some of that came out of the NIH, doubling the NIH budget. If we had not done that, we would not have been prepared in any way for COVID. The vaccines for COVID came out of the basic research that was funded during the 1990s, probably the 80s and 90s. Um, they created the platform for our ability to um, respond fairly quickly in developing a vaccine. And you, know, you speak about the NIH and innovation. You um, a couple of years later, uh, in Science Magazine, you you publish uh, another article. It was entitled "New Directions for Biomedical Science." It was interesting. In this uh, journal, you start off by actually quoting your mother <laughs> at the time, who was ninety, uh, and she was she was said to you, "Hey, with all the money that we're giving to your famous NIH, how did they not know that anthrax was in some of those sealed envelopes?" And then you go on to talk about you know whether it was uh, biodefense uh, or stem cells or other cutting edge technologies, you know, you go into sort of, you know, what are the models? What are the, the new structures that we need to create these diagnostics, these life-saving treatments? Um, President you know, Biden recently announced the, uh, the development of this new advanced research projects agency for health, sort of modeled on, on the DARPA model uh, to address some of these unmet medical needs. Um, and, you know, one of, one of the debates that I sort of saw right after that happened was this a whole thing, you know, do we put something like this when we talk about innovation uh, in the hands of the NIH and do it via that? model, which has worked very well, uh, or do we look at other models like DARPA, which does things fairly differently uh, in the way they go after, whether it's defense or, you know, they also work on health and so forth. Talk a little bit about uh, this area, if you would. I actually see them as partners, and I, I, I've always been sensitive to the role of the private sector. Um, you know, we talk a lot about big pharma, and uh, 
uh, their own pipeline. Their pipeline increasingly is buying licenses from the great research universities who have been funded by NIH and have developed close to products, but products that have to obviously uh, need more work. Um, and those are array of great research universities combined with the NIH is what gives the United States really advanced technology and advanced science so that we can take on uh, biodefense issues um, as well as uh, issues, just fundamental issues of infectious diseases. We already have a vaccine for monkeypox. We've been working on it for a very long uh, time. Whether we have the production uh, infrastructure or not is what we're debating now. There seems to be a small company um, in Europe that produces the vaccine. And that's in large part because as I found out when we were trying to do children's vaccines and raise the level of children uh, vaccines, Big Pharma is not very interested in vaccines unless you underwrite them, unless you guarantee them a market. They don't make much money on vaccines. Uh, because frankly, the production of vaccines is relatively inexper inexpensive once you get uh, once you get what you need to do, um, even the more complicated ones. And it's 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 developing the vaccine in the first place that's the expensive uh, part. And um, but once you get there, they've got better things they think they need to do with their companies, unless the United States says to them, as presidents have, including Trump. Uh, starting with uh, Trump, hey, we need you to reprogram all of your uh, manufacturing because this COVID thing is worldwide. So I, I think it's a public-private partnership and that you need different vehicles. NIH is always going to be the jewel that produces the, um, uh, the, the fundamental research uh, that we build upon. And NIH even goes a little further. They have some uh, capacity to actually develop the vaccines themselves, but the, certainly a combination of public-private partnership, different kinds of investments, which is what uh, DARPA does and what the new agency will do. We ought to pursue all three uh, because at the end of the day, a single approach is not going to work. And, and talking about the uh, the educational institutes, you know, I, I mentioned in the uh, the intro, you know, you're president uh, of the University of Miami for close to 15 years, and, and during that time, and we've had several guests on the show. You know, it became an epicenter for uh, diabetes research. Uh, there's a lot going on there in terms of the neurobiology of opioid addiction. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, there's a major hurricane research uh, and, and, and prediction center there now. Same at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, a major hub up there now. You were chancellor, uh, stem cells, regenerative medicine, and so forth. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, as innovation, science and tech, technology transfer has ramped up, how your role changed during that time. And obviously you had the role, you're president, you need, you need to educate people and bring in new students. But at the same time, uh, these institutes, as you ran them, became these major engines, not just for technology development, but for economic development as a result of that. Talk a little about those dual roles that, uh, that you serve. You know, I see the great research universities as economic en energy engines, not simply of their communities, but um, of the United States. 
if you look at our array of research universities, they really drive, as does um, pharma and uh, biotech uh, uh, more recently, they really drive the economy of the United States. They're relatively clean industries, by the way. So uh, they're not like service industries where they have low paying, uh, more low paying individuals. They're really major hubs of scientific discovery and of uh, taking science from the bench right to the patient. So those investments were critical, but I didn't see them simply um, um, as investments in producing vaccines and other kinds of treatments. I saw them for training the next generation of scientists. And one of the things that I always emphasis, emphasized and reminded NIH is that, and they didn't need much reminding, is doubling the NIH budget was not simply um, roaring uh, the economy. In fact, I told Bill Clinton once that his great legacy was going to be doubling the NIH uh, budget because that was going to pay off for years to come. But it was training the next generation of young scientists. We have no competition. Everybody talks about China. They have a couple of research institutes that are interesting or about Japan or about Europe. No one has our array or our muscle power or our investments uh, in science. And we have to be careful about it because it's fragile. Um, it's, it's very fragile. Um, and the research institutions are fragile. You have to keep the money going, not constantly doubling it necessarily, but ramping it up in a way in which you can guarantee that these young scientists will have opportunities in the future, both in great universities as well as in the private sector. Um, Secretary Shalila, in a recent um, January uh, 2021 paper um, that you published, um, entitled A Global Health Action Agenda for the Biden Administration. And you, know, you talk about, um, obviously COVID has shown that our interests, um, as you mentioned, tied to uh, other countries' health interests as well as our global health security. And then also you know, in your, um, the task force at the, uh, the Council of Foreign Relations, it goes a little further in the sense that non-communicable diseases, which popping up all over the place, whether it's heart disease, cancer, diabetes, in some of these low and middle, middle income countries, um, once again, feed into that cycle. We have disease, hunger, poverty. It's a nasty cycle that it might happen over there, but just like COVID, it's gonna impact us over here. Talk a little bit about um, this uh, health action agenda. It was an ambitious one, but, but say a few words about uh, why you wrote this. Well, I think uh, constantly making the point that it's not just about the United States. We are not safe until every country in the world is safe in terms of infectious diseases, even in, in, in terms of those kind of middle class diseases that people observe that are not infectious. Um, and, uh, and our investments here must roll over to make the rest of the world safe. But it's also a national security issue. I once debated with the great Gene Kirkpatrick at a conference on whether AIDS was a national security issue because I was arguing that health is a national security issue. It impacted uh, milit the military all over the world. And one of the reasons other countries started to notice that 
is because it impacted their young soldiers and that created security issues. But it also was a security issue for us and that we had to recognize and incorporate health into national security. I actually detailed a global health expert to the National Security Council. They, they did not have a full-time healthcare advisor there that understood the global health issues as they related to national security issues. Now there's a unit actually within the National Security Council, but we were the first people that actually put someone there so they would recognize um, that healthcare, um, that health issues, um, not just infectious diseases, but that health issues were related to national security. Talking about health and national security, um, I'd like to move to the, the opioid crisis for a bit because I've, I had the opportunity uh, now to attend a few of the, the virtual Clinton Foundation um, uh, conferences on, on novel approaches to, to dealing with the opioid crisis, including face-based organization involvement. Uh, you know, you, you headed up the Clinton Foundation for a couple of years. You've also been involved in the, uh, the opioid crisis task force at the, the Bipartisan Policy Center. Um, I grew up in the late 1960s, uh, early 1970s, and it seemed like whether drugs <laughs> in general was an issue, whether it was number three, four, or five, it was somewhere up there. Uh, this is your brain on drugs and so forth. Um, I don't know where it is today, but as you point out, and you know, you, you released the, the report, uh, the Center Combating the Opioid Crisis, Smarter Spending, and the Federal Response. We got a big problem <laughs> uh, in terms of the numbers behind this issue, direct, indirect, and just the amount of people that are it's killing every year now in the U.S. alone. Um, can you say a few words about sort of where the opioid crisis in, in sort of your involvement over the years in government sort of has fallen, why it's fallen, and a couple of some things we can do about it? Well, uh, I began to see um, the addiction to opiates on college campuses yeah. with students. Yeah. Tragedies, one tragedy after another with overdoses. It wasn't just that I was running universities that had great medical schools and great research um, that was going on. It was, and, or that I understood that the pain, the politics of pain led to um, opiates mm -hmm. um, and that we actually legally created much of this problem. Um, some of it was because people were trying to alleviate pain, and some of it was the absolute crime of um, uh, the drug manufacturers themselves, the limited number that were, uh, that were actually selling and pushing uh, these drugs. As you well know, there's a whole history here. But the opiate crisis is very different than COVID. Sure. You, there is no vaccine for opiate addiction. It is, if you are addicted, we need to stay with you for almost your whole life with services um, and with support systems. Um, and it's not just a treatment program. It's more than that. It's a support system that's got to last for a very, very long time. And that's what we've learned about opiates, um, that once someone is addicted, then it's both a mental health crisis as well as a housing crisis, as well as a job crisis, as well as a family crisis, all these pieces put together. 
we've put an enormous amount of money into this. Most of it, as our report points out, is in Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, that's not an integrated system. And so we've also put grant programs together to try to create an integrated system and try to urge the states to merge a lot of these grant programs in a way that will create supports, literally putting our arms around uh, those that are addicted and sticking with them for a very long um, uh, period of time. You never get over an addiction. Ask anyone who's been addicted to cigarettes, frankly. Um, You never get, or to alcohol. Um, You simply have to keep working at it, but you can't work at it unless you have a support system. And it's got to be more than just your family. Appreciate that. Um, Secretary Shalai, one of the things that um, I I mentioned in the intro, uh, while you were leading um, Hunter College, uh, City University of New York, you had responsibility for uh, the Brookdale Center on Aging. And uh, the themes of healthy aging, uh, longevity, geroscience have been very important topics on our show. Um, and once again, as you know, you led HHS, many of the sort of subordinate agencies uh, that oversee a- sort of aging policy, science, and so forth from the NIH, uh, the Administration of Community Living, obviously Medicare and Medicaid, and then indirectly FDA fell under your purview. Um, and this is an area that, you know, one of the themes we touch on is something about called health span that, you know, if we could just uh, not get rid of, but if we could just delay uh, the biology of aging, which is responsible for dementia or cancer or heart disease or everything that falls under it, um, the returns <laughs> to the U.S. economy, global economy, are, it, it's, it's one of those areas where the, the trillion figure comes in. Um, yet we, we don't spend, I mean, the, the uh, recent appropriations budget, about $4 billion for the National Institute on Aging, an admirable amount, but still small compared to the total NIH. Could you say a few words about um, healthy longevity, aging as sort of a policy issue? And then, you know, thinking about the bipartisan commission and, and their $100 billion moonshot. Um, if I wanted to go about a moonshot with you uh, on dealing with the topics of, of aging, uh, looking forward, how do we go about it? <laughs> it's an important topic. Well, in some ways we are going about it because we're focused on Alzheimer's and dementia. Right. But, but healthy aging is more than just the science. Yeah. It's wellness uh, as well. And the private sector is, has developed a series of institutions, long-term care facilities, sure. um, assisted living facilities, trying to adjust to people as, they, as their situation changes. Um, and trying to build in support systems at the same time. You'll see a lot of this in Medicare Advantage, which has extra money to add services, uh, whether it's dental services um, or or exercise uh, facilities, access to exercise uh, facilities, um, or a a much more integrated approach to supporting people um, that uh, as as they age, age is just a number. And, and um, how we treat other countries have a lot more respect for those that are older. Yeah. My mother passed at 104. <laughs> and boy, she lived, a, she played tennis into her 90s. I mean, she won tournaments into her 80s. 
Um, and she was a very healthy individual. She didn't start getting dementia until her last year and a half. So I was very lucky. But I also saw the need for support systems, particularly if you wanted to keep your loved one at home. Yep. Home health care has been a big uh, issue. It was a big issue when I was at NIH. But again, it's the integrated approach as people's situation changes. But it's also deep investments as we're trying to learn more about Alzheimer's and about dementia and about the other diseases um, that are related to getting older, whether it's stroke or heart attacks or all of those. Um, there's a lot more money in aging than it looks like. Mm -hmm. I, I created the first assistant secretary for aging. Yep. Fernando Torres Skill, who was one of the great experts on aging, I had met as a White House fellow uh, during the Carter administration. I called him up because he was heading an aging institute at, uh, I think it was at UCLA at the time, and said, hey, Fernando, would you like to come back? And he said, only if you elevate um, the role of aging in um, the department. And I said, we'll create an assistant secretary for aging. So he had disability and aging. Not that they're necessarily the same groups, but um, he taught me a lot of, as I learned from uh, the Brookdale Center, yep. where I first ran into the real experts on aging um, in this country, both at Mount Sinai in New York, as well as Rose Dobroff, who was running uh, the Brookdale Center uh, at the time. So um, this is an area, yes, could we use more resources? The answer is yes, but there's a lot of work going on. It's just not pulled together in a way that gets from the bench uh, uh, to people. That, but this is an area where we've got a lot of resources and where the private sector is trying to respond, not just with appropriate housing, but with the kinds of services that people need so that they can have a quality of life as they get older. Yeah, it's such an extremely important point in terms of um, the, 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 the aging in place, uh, social determinants. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate you, you bringing those points into it because it's uh, overlooked, uh, I think, too much. Um, Secretary, you are um, you're very passionate about nursing and nurse, nursing care. You've published on geriatric nursing, um, the expanded role of physician's assistants, uh, new models of nursing care. Uh, what got you so interested in, in nursing as, a, uh, as an important topic? You know, I had um, three nursing schools under me at Hunter, at Wisconsin, and um, at uh, Miami. So I learned a lot from those deans and from Nursing is patient-centered, which is where we want the healthcare system to go. Their research is patient-centered. Uh, what they do in their approach is patient-centered. Um, I've always seen them as the glue that holds the healthcare system together. Most people see a nurse, an advanced practice nurse, um, when they go to their doctor's offices. And I've seen the progress we've made in nursing is in understanding that this is a team approach, that if you're going to approach someone's healthcare, it's got to be a team. And they've got to be partners. Uh, nurses cannot be handmaidens of the doctors. And, and in addition to that, I've always been interested in advanced practice nursing, nurse practitioners, because they can provide almost 70% of all the primary care uh, in this country. We'll never be able to produce enough doctors 
to handle all of primary care. And by the way, if you look at red states versus blue states, there are a lot of red states that give nurse practitioners a lot more authority than blue states. Mm. It depends on the role of, uh, uh, of uh, their medical societies. But the most progressive state may be New Hampshire in mm. terms of the role of, of nurses. If you look at the Western states, many of them uh, use nurse practitioners for primary care. Uh, and so this isn't a red or a blue issue. Sure. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, the states have the authority over scope of practice. I believe strongly, and I've always believed that people ought to be able to practice up to their educational level. The states determine the educational level but not all of them allow people to practice, whether it's physician's assistants or nurses or, or pharmacists. Increasingly, we're allowing pharmacists to do a lot more. So I've been interested in all of these professions, nursing in particular, to expand their scope of practice as a way of integrating healthcare in this country and making sure that people have access to good healthcare. Outstanding. Outstanding. I, I mentioned. Um your involvement in the, the Opioid Crisis Task Force uh, per the, the Bipartisan Policy Center, but you're also um, on the Nutrition and Physical Activity uh, Initiative, uh, the Prevention Initiative. Can you say a few words about that? You know, um, if we could get people to stop smoking, to eat right, and to exercise, we could save a lot of money in healthcare. Yeah. People who have okay. lived longer. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's almost low tech. In addition to that, throw in some vaccines, and uh, we would be in a different place in terms of the cost of healthcare in the United States. And so I see all these pieces as critical, but in particular, the stop smoking, uh, the exercise, and the nutrition as critical elements. We get too twisted around in terms of biomedical science and all the investments we must make, but at the end of the day, we have expanded life expectancy in this country through sanitation, building codes, vaccines, more than all of the investments uh, in science. So in some ways, we have to make sure that we merge these two to understand. And, and now we've got the environmental issues that we have to deal with which are also critical to extending life expectancy uh, in this country. So we've got we've to pay attention to low tech as well as high tech. Um, if you really care about um, lengthening life expectancy in this country and the quality of life uh, that we want people to have, not only in our country, but around the world. If... Um... If I came into your classroom in September, um, what, what's on the what's on the itinerary? Well, uh, you know, students are much more interested in the issues that they see, the environment, opiate, the politics of opiates, um, uh, in particular. If you talk to students, mm -hmm. I of course try to get them interested in the cost of healthcare. <laughs> and who's left out and, and the social determinants of health right. and who's left out of the healthcare system and the disparities in the system, um, which I have to coax them into. They have absolutely no interest in Medicare mm. or Medicaid. Some mm. of them have a little bit of interest in Medicaid if there's someone on their family um, has been on uh, Medicaid uh, 
uh, for a period of time. They're really fascinated with Operation Warp Speed and COVID now. Yeah. So uh, the fact that I invite Alex Azar, the former secretary um, in the Trump administration into my class to talk about how he did Warp Speed uh, really uh, turns them on. And he's very good at, at, at explaining uh, the politics of uh, Big Pharma and how you work through that uh, to get vaccines up and off the ground and to millions of people around the world. So that's the kind of thing the students are interested. I'm deeply interested in how we take on healthcare costs mm -hmm. so that we have a better distribution and in the disparities issues. Um, health in relationship to the environment is a relatively new subject. Oh, yeah. And um, But the kids get it right away. The young people get it right away. They get, they get excited about talking about it, about things that can be done and about commitments that uh, uh, they have. And then I try to make them understand the high-tech, low-tech issue that I just discussed sure. with you, uh, the public health issues. Uh, but trying to get them interested in where we're spending the money <laughs> and how we're spending it, uh, I have to drag them into that discussion. Yeah, we taught them that it doesn't grow on trees. <laughs> and they want stories. They oh. want to hear my stories about how did we get all the kids in the country vaccinated right. uh, at the right time? And how do you really move mountains um, to do that kind of thing? Um, the, it was the Clinton administration that brought RU486 into this country through chance. Yep. The French company wanted to get rid of the license. They made a phone call to me um, and said, uh, hey, would you take the license? And I said, the government doesn't take licenses like that. <laughs> we found the population council, council to, find, to do the license. And then private sector people, the Buffets, basically financed the clinical trials. And so the majority of abortions now in this country are actually medically induced. Just from a phone call from a French company to the secretary of HHS, to a willing secretary of HHS, but I was smart enough to keep the government out of the politics of that and to let the public, the nonprofit sector take the lead. Excellent. And outside of the classroom, um, anything else that's, that's hot for the rest of 2022, other places that we can see you, meet you, uh, conferences you're gonna be at, uh, anything else that I missed, please? Well, um, I sit on the board of Research America. I sit on the board of a couple of different uh, schools of public service. I'm very interested. Uh, the Clinton uh, School at the University of Arkansas, I'm chairing the board of that. Mm -hmm. They have a new dean that came from the University of Texas at Austin, who's Mexican-American, um, and a dynamic new dean and a new way of doing public service that combines real getting kids, young people out working in the in the nonprofit sector in the public service while they're going to school and i think that that's important i also sit on the board of my my own school the maxwell school which is ranked number one in the country um which is um a, an extraordinary school of public administration and public service and has been for a hundred years so that i'm i'm doing um i'm starting to talk to small companies in the medicare business that are adding services, just going on the board of a company called Chapter, which actually, were, if you call them up, uh, 
uh, and you're, you're turning 65, they'll give you help free um, to uh, pick the right plan for you, one that'll cover your doctors that, that's in your community. If you wanna change that plan, they'll stay with you uh, a year from now and um, help you do that. It's different than other companies. They pay salaries to the people that are advisors as opposed to bonuses based on who they uh, refer um, uh, people to. So it's a, it's a different attitude. Um, they've taken, um, so they get people to the right, at the right time to the right place. And it's, it's run by two young, very outstanding entrepreneurs who really understand the healthcare business and want to make sure people get to the right place at the right time. I also read proposals for some of these investment, mm -hmm. a big investment uh, company, and I can tell them whether they're going to make money. I can't tell them whether they'll make a lot of money, <laughs> but adding services to Medicare recipients is very important, I think, because Medicare is a Chevrolet as opposed to Cadillac. We've talked for a long time about the need for dental services and eyeglass services, but there are other things that people need um, as well if we're going to put our arms around people over 65 and keep them healthy as long as we possibly can. So I work with the private sector as well as uh, with the public sector. I get lots of phone calls from people that want advice and lots of calls from young people that want advice on how they can be the next cabinet secretary. <laughs> I tell them to look around their classroom and figure out who's going to run for president. There you go. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, Secretary, so what, one last thing while I have you, I have to ask, uh, when I go to um, your, your social media links, uh, you post some videos of your dog, um, which happens to be named Fauci. And I was just wondering how that came about and if Tony is upset with that. <laughs> no, Tony said that... Um, uh, 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 Tony thought he was pretty cute. My dog uh, was pretty cute. Unfortunately, he's at doggy daycare to get today. He has a girlfriend. Ah. Um, so he likes going to doggy daycare, a Pekingese. Um, my dog is a mutt. I've had dogs for years and my other dog had died uh, a couple of years before. And during COVID, um, uh, a rescue group that I work with called me and said, hey, we got a little dog. I said, I've never had a little dog. And they said, well, we picked him up. He was running around Coconut Grove. He's really cute and he ought to come and look at him. And I said, how small is he? And they said, nine pounds. I've never had a nine pound dog. I'm used to these 20, 30 pound big dogs. Um, so I went to look at him and he was really cute. And um, I said, where'd you find him? And they said, he ran into an Italian restaurant. So you have to give him an Italian name. So we were in the middle of COVID and I thought, Fauci. There you go. <laughs> And he's adorable. He definitely is. I, I just, you know, I had to ask, but he's definitely adorable. But I, I sent Tony a picture. He thought he was cute. He wasn't uh, uptight at all. He, he, at least he got back to you, you know? <laughs> there you go. Yep, right. Yep, there he is. There he is. Yep. Um, the... Um, the doorman in my building, my apartment building, call him Mr. Fauci. Okay. They said he has an attitude and um, they think he should be a mister. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Secretary, it, it was fascinating uh, listening to to your story, have you share your knowledge on all these, these important topics. Well, thank and you. You know, um, part of my interest is always leadership. Yeah. And... Uh, 
I tell my students stories about leadership. My favorite one is um, about the vaccines uh, because, uh, you know, presidents campaign on different issues and Bill Clinton had promised everybody that he would make sure kids got their vaccines at the right time. Most kids get their vaccines by the time they start school, but we really needed to get them their vaccines before they were three under the new science. I don't think we had 50% that were getting it on time. And um, he said to me, you know, that'd be a great thing to run on for my second term. He said, do you think you can get all the kids uh, immunized by the time they're three? And I said, yeah, I think I can do it. So I went to talk to the public health people in the department and they said there was no way. They actually said no. no. I mean, this is a big meeting of public health people. They said, first of all, the parents don't know even the names. The second, the pediatricians don't give the shots. You know, the, the public health people do. A lot of the people that have small babies um, uh, don't want to go back and forth. They can't afford the vaccine. So we went to Congress and we got money to make the vaccines very inexpensive. And we talked to the pediatricians about giving the shots. Um, but in that meeting, um, and the reason the dog story becomes important, I had a dog named Bucky. He was named Bucky Badger because I came from Wisconsin. <laughs> and um, I pulled out a postcard in that meeting where everybody was saying no to me that came from my dog's vet. And it said, dear Bucky, time for your next shot. And I said, look, if the vets in this country can get all the dogs and all the cats and all the sheep and all the cows vaccinated mm -hmm. at the right time without universal health care, yep. we can figure out a way to get the kids vaccinated. And they all laughed. And um, Bucky should have gotten an award because we figured out how to do it. We even got the tray liners in McDonald's to print the schedules. And the first ladies in every state um, governor's offices took on the responsibility. I remember... Um, George Bush had shots for tots in Texas. It was bipartisan. We, we simply did a full court press. My nickname is Boom Boom because I like attracting issues from different directions. So I talked the Gerber's people into putting it on the back of their boxes. I mean, we used every communications and we built a tracking system. So if a kid wandered into an emergency room, they could look on their um, on their computer and see what shot they were eligible for next. Um, and, and we even ran a campaign with the Mexican uh, health secretary along the border with cards. So if any of those kids um, came to the United States, they would have a card that would tell um, the doctors and the public health people what shots they had already had. And we uh, we learned a lot from developing companies who uh, countries who have these big vaccine days mm -hmm. um but we we got everybody their shots on time and clinton uh president clinton loved that he loved the fact that american kids were healthier they were also wealthier because we did welfare reform and other kinds of economics right. issues but um that story about pulling out the card that my dog bucky had gotten mm -hmm. the students love because it shows how you can link things and what kind of a leader is persistent about getting things done. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a, that's a great story. It's a great story. It's um, it's fascinating. I I, I look forward to continuing 
you know, to watch, uh, you know, your, your journey uh, and everything that you, you're doing and teaching and, and representing companies in both the public and private sector. Um, for everybody, again, that is, uh, is going to be listening to this episode uh, across the podcast networks or watching on the YouTube channel, and you've been listening to public servant, scholar, teacher, administrator, the Honorable Secretary, Dr. Donna Shalala, um, Secretary Shalala, I thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while about all these issues. Obviously, thank you for everything that you've been doing. And as we say on our show, thank you for having spent so much time creating a better tomorrow for people uh, in this country and around the world. It's a really wonderful story. Well, thank you. Good seeing you.